Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary, as well as Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies here at Dallas. And as you can see, we are connected by Skype with Eric Redman, who is Associate Professor of Bible at Moody in downtown Chicago, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, so it's a real privilege to have Eric. We've we've talked on numerous occasions about doing some stuff together, so this is kind of our first attempt at that, and uh, I'm really pleased that Eric has found the time to do this. Eric uh, not only teaches Bible at Moody, but he is working his way towards the release of a book uh, that he's edited called Say It, Celebrating Expository Preaching in the African-American Tradition. And we're going to be talking about that some, as well as just the black church in America in general. So um, so with that, I'll ask my traditional first question, which is, how did a nice guy like you get into a gig like this? <laughs> well, it's so good to be on the program and just have this conversation with you. You know, in asking that, I think about my beginnings with preaching. And when I was in Bible college, I didn't plan to go into preaching. In fact, I went to school for engineering before Bible college, and others recognized that I had a call to preach. Hmm. And so you got, you got what, exhorted in? Is that be the way to say it? or It might be. It has to do with the African-American church tradition. When I went to explain to my pastor that I wanted to spend my life in ministry, vocational ministry service, my assistant pastor and then youth pastor both stopped me and said, pastor is not going to understand that language. Just tell him you're called to preach. To which I replied, I'm not called to preach. Just tell him you're called to preach. Let him handle it. Huh. And that's what happened. Okay, so that that's a good starting point for thinking about um, the experience of the black church uh, and, and and how it kind of functions in America. What, what would you say, I mean, obviously to a broad audience, what would you say are kind of the distinctives of the way in which the black church functions, perhaps in contrast to the way, say, many evangelical churches might function? What, and then, obviously, the similarities. Uh, some of the functions that are different more broadly is that there is a closer identification with ethnicity in our gospel construct, meaning this. I was just looking at a flyer recently and how African Americans of many different denominational stripes were in a conference uh, together, and everyone there wouldn't wear the label evangelical. But we participate together because we recognize culturally we have so much in agreement. So that would be a major thing. And the other thing would be our emphasis on uh, justice and hope, not that those don't appear in Scripture, uh, but just a social, cultural emphasis on that would be very unique for us. So, so just to say it this way, the social context of being a church that's built around being a minority, both culturally, ethnically, etc., creates a space where people can function in the context of their own culture in a comfortable way um, and in a way that that. Um, that is affirming, 
mutually affirming, both in terms of their Christian walk and and uh, those features of life that are particular to living uh, in in a minority context. And so, you know, we we read at the at the in the center we read materials about well we're reading a book right now by Peter Berger called The Modern Altars of Modernity and it's a sociological look at, at the impact of pluralism on religion and one of the discussions is well shouldn't the church be you know uh, ethnically diverse and etc but one of the features that this book points out is is the reason people tend to gather in their ethnic groups is because there's there is a closeness and in the case of minorities there is a space where people can fully be who they are and and be comfortable in that yeah i would say that is an accurate portrayal of what happens in the African-American church. So I can speak as one who grew up in the African-American church, has served as a pastor in the African-American church, on staff in African-American churches, but also served on in predominantly white settings, even where I am on staff right now. And one of the things that my wife and I experience from time to time is just missing African-American gospel music because of the familiarity we have with it, the comfort levels we have with it. And sometimes being in a non-African-American context, uh, we also experience a level of discomfort when something happens like um, the O.J. Simpson trial or when Laquan McDonald, uh, an African-American youth in Chicago, is shot here. And we have different cultural ways of looking at the experiences and the aftermath and our our assessments of what's going on. The African-American church, like many ethnic minority churches, allows you to feel uh, comfortable with what you're familiar with. And so uh, the point being then that that's sometimes what's driving people gathering together because they get to function in the context of their spirituality in an environment that is reflective of their overall experience and because the African-American experience in uh, the United States is so distinct from the experience of many other groups, not just white groups, but other minorities as well, that that, that um, being able to, to give a, a Christian frame to that is important in terms of how a person develops. I would agree. If, if I or anyone else consistently experiences a level of discomfort among, among fellow believers, or maybe feels that we're just not understood at, at, at the majority of our time, or that we have to downplay a portion of our, our identity, who we are within, uh, in order to exist in another experience. After a while, that can become uh, a tiring for for many people, whereas in your own ethnic, cultural environment, even your own economic environment or your own regional environment, you don't experience that need to work so hard to be something different. Okay. Uh, th this is the difference between what sociologists will call assimilation versus integration. Assimilation is the minority assimilates or or moves towards the majority culture in such a way that they actually end up suppressing some of who they are, whereas integration is actually the space to be more genuinely who you are. Yeah, I, yes. Um, I'll just say yes on that one. We're wrestling with that at our current church right now. The way we talk about it is, are we a 
church that is welcoming of all all people? Are we really a diverse church, or are we just multi? ethnic, and the optics show us to be multi-ethnic, but when we come a layer lower and we have to talk about the things most important to us and things that have significance to us uh, spiritually, can we bring in issues and matters of culture and still be united and loving? So we're, we're having those discussions. That's a good way to describe it. So uh, if I can just make a picture, there are two kinds of stew. <laughs> uh, um, one, one kind has each, each lump of group in its own square, even though you're in the same pot, and the other actually is a much more integrated and much more uh, mixed together. And, and, and you're always going to have a little bit of that mix because of the different perspectives, but how you do that and how you view those differences become very, very important, how you negotiate that space. And even how comfortable everyone is in that space when we're trying to navigate uh, those issues. Part of our growing is just learn to navigate those things uh, together so that each one of us is growing more and more comfortable with the things that initially cause discomfort. Right, yeah, and, and of course that's the huge challenge, both whether you're in a particular community or, or at large, you know, um, dealing with the nature of, the di- of differences is, um, is part of the trick. Let me, let me I'm going to try and go at the other distinctive that you mentioned, uh, the justice and hope angle. I'm going to try and go at it in a slightly different way than oftentimes it gets discussed today by actually trying to approach it through the avenue of the history and the roots of black music. Um, and there's a reason why I want to go there. I have a line that I like to use when people get uncomfortable when you start to talk about justice in relationship to race. And my line goes, Christianity predates Marxism by just a little bit. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, um, so when you think about this, you know, the emphasis on the Old Testament on justice, even the emphasis on the New Testament about how you deal with people who are different than you, the call to love your enemy, that kind of thing, there are themes that come out of the Bible that predate any of the ideological boxes that we tend to want to put them in today that, that – uh, feed into the way Christians are supposed to interact. And the thing that fascinates me about um, African-American music is that these themes existed long before you had um, Marxism and communism and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit uh, in terms of the what gets sung about and why it gets sung about and how far back that goes and all those kinds of things? Oh, wow, how far back it goes. Uh, You need a much better historian, even though uh, I would say in my studies of black church uh, history, if we go all the way back to the slave plantation and the times when uh, the African slaves, now African-American, would go to the woods uh, under a brush uh, arbor, have their services there, have a ring shout music, the chanting what later grew into becoming the watch hymns had already begun back then. It was a, a carryover of, of much of the music. And, of course, having its roots there in the slavery culture, where there was always the hope of being uh, free, so much of the music has this hope of freedom, hope of deliverance, hope of redemption uh, theme in it. Um, It's also, though, going to have a lot of focus on 
how sorrowful life is and how God is a great uh, healer and he is the way maker and the cheer and the joy that God brings because suffering was so tied to uh, African-American experience that we just we just sung uh, about it. So it wasn't just something that was in, in blues culture. Blues culture is first cousin of gospel uh, culture. It was just part of what characterizes the songs that we have sung and even sing to this day. So uh, I, what I'm thinking about is the way in which the music and the words re- almost reflect the emotion of the experience and the perspective of the experience, and, and, and talking about themes that generally speaking, and this is generic a generic remark which can be dangerous, but still, it, uh, deals with themes and issues generally speaking that if you came over to the Christian music tradition of the predominantly white church, which is you know, doctrinal and hymnic and and stating through for more propositions. It isn't that experience isn't there, but it's there in a different through a different lens and through a different set of experiences. Um, it, it strikes me how uh, how down to earth, if I can say it that way, the mm-hmm. black experience is expressed in this music and what it represents for the nature of the community and its identity and the, its sense of identity. Yes. So um, let's even think of some of our more contemporary uh, singers, names that I think most of the listeners will be familiar with. Uh, When I think of music, uh, even by Fred Hammond, who originally broke away from the group with which he played so that he could focus more on praise and worship uh, music. When you listen to Fred's music, so much of his music is characterized by uh, I've had an experience of suffering. My heavenly father is the one uh, who is there uh, for me. It has I, I, words about overcoming and difficulties that are laced in his music. And, and I would say the same for many other very well-known contemporary African-American Christian artists in a way that's not trying to do what our brothers and sisters of a different hue are trying to do in, in lay out the doctrine we see in Nicene or Apostolic Creed uh, that, uh, according to uh, song and um, the, the points of orthodox theology, um, using orthodoxy just for sound, uh, here to to lay that out in singing so that we're rehearsing doctrine in our song. We're rehearsing a relationship with God and a God who's been there with us in our song. And so again, that is what is germane to much of our music. So it's if I can make the analogy, it's songs of experience, which actually the moment I say it that way makes me think of that's what the Psalter is. Um, you know, the Psalms are these, in many cases, these cries out to God in the midst of challenge or suffering or pain or lament. I mean, we even have a section of the Psalter that, uh, that are called groups of songs that are called laments. Yeah. And so um, the idea of, of singing your experience to God and engaging with Him at the level of what you're going through um, has rich biblical roots. And I'll just repeat the observation I made earlier. I think the Psalms were written a little earlier than any political <laughs> ideologies that we talk about today. <laughs> I would say the same thing. I would say we never had to wrestle with, in the African-American tradition, whether, it was not, whether or not it was okay to feel 
while you're in worship and to express uh, feelings and for there to be emotions without emotionalism and for you to have a right sensual experience with God without it being sensationalism or manipulation. We, you, you do have that and you do have those extremes, but that was just so part and parcel of our experiences to ex- express lament and uh, wail and uh, shouts and shouts of hope and uh, joy that it, it didn't really come into uh, question. It just became, and if we're going to have a worship experience and have music that goes with this, this will be part of the music. Okay, now th- this actually brings up a second theme that that I'd like to raise in a more generic sense before we turn to preaching in particular, and uh, although it's, it's going to be a bridge. You know, one of the things that I enjoy when I go and speak into an African-American church is, is that I don't have a monologue. I kind of have a dialogue with the audience. <laughs> uh, they, are, they are talking to me at the same time I am interacting with them, and um, I, I may be – I don't know if I'm like or un like other uh, whites who come in and preach in black churches, but usually when that happens, I'll engage and and not, and not just you know press on, uh, which I always find to be um, a really engaging way uh, to connect with the with the audience and to be responsive to their the way they're responding to me and the word that I'm presenting. Um, do you have any idea where that came from? And mm-hmm. and and. And, uh, you know, uh, it's such a lively part of, of, a, of an African-American worship service. So, Dr. Bach, you know this. There are multiple strands coming together to make that call and response happen, going all the way back to fields where slaves sung together and there were songs where there was a leader and there would be affirming, to going back to the code and signaling that would take place so that a white master on the plantation could not understand what is being sung, but everyone else is saying, yes, we get you, song leader, you're coding to us that there's much more going on and escape is possible um, here. Uh, But then you add that we are an honor and shame uh, culture, and affirming is a big part of honoring. When you put all these strands in there, Uh, together, and you just bring the embodied person of that honor and shame, post-slave, great-great-grandson or daughter of slaves, into worship, you get people who affirm sermons also. That's just been been part of it. And so it's a dialogue uh, for us in which we're implicitly saying, you do get that's what God is saying, and the audience says, yeah, we absolutely agree that that's what God is saying, and you're doing a great job the way you're saying it, Yeah, by the you way. tell me to go for it, and I say, you ain't seen nothing yet. So anyway, uh, and, and so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting part and a very distinctive part in many ways of the difference of what happens in the context of the ministry of the Word as, as people are ministering in, in a certain uh, context. Let me talk about one element of this conversation that that also is kind of working at the same time. A lot of the roots of this do go back to the periods of slave. You talked about speaking in code while you're in the fields. uh, The 
humorous side of me says, so this is your form of the book of Revelation, you know, uh, and, uh, yes. and apocalyptic. exactly right. Uh, and, and so dealing with suffering, I mean, the book of Revelation is dealing with suffering. It's, it is, there's an element of theodicy to it. And so some of this emotional response is out of a place that needs a theodicy, if I can say it that way, and that, and that rests in, in a trust of God in the midst of suffering, et cetera. Now, one of the things that someone might observe is say, well, all that and all those roots, if they go back to this period of the slaves, et cetera, uh, why is it continued in the post-slavery period? And that, that may be a challenging question, but why do you think it's continued in a post-slavery period? Well, I think a major theme or major experience of African Americans that continues to happen in American culture is the experience of injustice and and suffering, and that creates or continues a need for African Americans to dialogue in a way that we understand what we're talking about, and we can affirm and say we're distant from the experience. That experience we're having outside the church is is not who we are. We're we're more than that. We have human dignity, and we affirm, and then we want to talk about what's going on in culture without explicitly uh, saying, and, you know, we're really angry about that, or we don't like that, or you are in that way. And so when you leave slavery, you, you get Jim Crow. When you leave Jim Crow, you get the civil rights era. And then you get the post-civil rights era where, you know, the the injustices are not so overtly discriminatory or or racial, but they still they're still there, and so it still continues as part of our experience. Let me add this real quick: it's also part of our experience because we never want to forget where we came from and don't want to end up back in a situation like that. Which also, if I could beat you to the punch this time, Doctor Bach, sounds like the end of the historical books. Mm-hmm. Yes, good. Um, uh, lo- uh, one other theme, and then we'll transition to the preaching directly. Um, when you mentioned the honor and shame culture, and uh, and something that I often hear out of the African American community in general is this. Um, I'm not quite sure how to cast the cast the description, but this. I don't know if it's a plea, a demand, or a recognition for respect, which comes with the idea of honoring someone and and um, and accepting them for for who they are and being willing to ac- accept them as they are. Those kinds of things. I take it those two things are connected. That that the honor and shame culture, which drives the African American community, and this constant conversation to the outside groups of we want respect, we want where this is important to us in terms of who we are. This is part of the affirmation of who we are as human beings made in the image of God, etc. That that's a very important uh, connection that may or may not. Uh, be as explicitly present in other cultures because the struggle for that recognition hasn't been as great as it has been in the African-American community. Yeah, so again, there are multiple layers here, and the last part is very important, in which you said in other communities, having respect in society has not been something for which that group has had to uh, struggle 
or had to demand. It has that in a general sense. It, it has that respect. It's in positions of authority and of a power. Um, it's in positions where there is uh, equity or par uh, financially. To, to even some mindsets, to look at people in that culture is to think those persons are are better, and we know the old sociological exams that used to show that used to put up a white face, and what do you think here, black face? What do you think here? And they would have higher words for uh, the white or even a lighter skin uh, face. But also, uh, let's just think about what's happened in African American history. You have somebody like an Emmett Till who's accused of whistling at a, a, a white lady, and he loses life in a horrible way over it. Well. African-American culture was taught, look, when you're dealing with the other culture, you have to be super respectful. And so there's a sense in which we raised our, our families to be respectful of that culture. But we're not going to have less respect in our own culture. We're certainly going to respect one another in our culture. And it just so happened that because the African-American preacher used to be the most one of the most educated people in the community, he got the highest respect and he spoke for God. He got high respect. But then... We look at the other culture and how we're being treated and said, hey, this shouldn't go one way. You guys should respect us as people here. And so um, we're not begging anymore. You know that by the fact that African-American culture, more than any other culture, has said, look, we'll have our own TV shows. Thank you. We'll have our own schools. Uh, thank you. We'll have our own products. Thank you. If you won't respect us, we'll just you know, go over here. But the call to society is constantly recognize us as people made in the image of God, people who deserve dignity. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Okay, now there's one. Uh, I said that I, I lied that that was going to be my last question, sir, because I thought of another one. Um, so, and we get to lie on occasion on this show. So, um, I did think of one more, and that is the role of the pastor in the church as a combination pastor and community leader is certainly more commonly the case that the pastor in uh, a black church is going to have a foot in each of those spaces, whereas it, it sometimes is the case, but more often is not, that a pastor in a, in a white church doesn't have that scope of, of perceived cultural responsibility in the leadership role that they possess. Um, one, is that observation true in your judgment? And secondly, if it is, why is that so? That observation is so true. Even right now in Chicago, uh, we're having the attorney general candidates that uh, for the state, they're running for office. And 
a group of African-American pastors in the city just gathered and backed the African-American state's attorney, which is a big deal. That's like saying, okay, the entire African-American community uh, is behind you here because the pastors have come here. And we're not going to see a coalition of non-African-American pastors going back the other candidate. That's just not something that we're going to see. And this would be common all across the United States. So the why behind it, let's just think about what is and what isn't in the African-American community in comparison to other communities. Bonner uh, poll, Gallup polls will tell you um, African-Americans are more religious as an ethnic group than any other group in the country. By far, there are Percentage-wise, there are more of us in uh, church here. It is the center or the hub of much of African-American life. It's where the strength is, and it's the wealthiest entity in the African-American community. And historically, when institutions are are power players and are, are places that make politicians stand up, uh, you continue in that, in that vein, and that's the African-American church. We don't have, we don't own big corporations here. We, the, uh, our, our universities are not considered to have the power that many predominant cultured universities are considered, but the church is. And so the head of the church, the pastors, then become very important power players and representatives for the African-American community, a voice for us, and that's been so historically. Interesting. Okay, so now, so we've kind of done the background of, of African American church, at least in a way that might um, introduce some distinctives of, of the African American experience. Let's turn our attention now to preaching, and I, I like the book title, Say It, Expository Preaching in the African American Tradition, uh, Celebrating Expository Preaching in the African American Tradition, which implies, if I'm reading it carefully, that there are aspects of preaching, a way preaching is done in the African-American tradition, in the African-American communities, that are worth celebrating in part because they are distinctive. Absolutely. You are reading that correctly here, but that seems like we're leading somewhere, so ask me the next thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, my, my, my question is, so so what is distinctive about that, and what is what are the distinctive parts of what you're celebrating? But the other half of that question is important, too, which is, what is it that uh, expository preaching the African-American tradition shares with the larger church that allows us to connect across, and this is an important theme in light of everything that we've been discussing up to this point, that allows us to connect with the rest of the church in ways that lays a foundation for having a sense of a larger unity in the midst of our diversity? That is a great question here. So let's talk African-American tradition so we can put that on the table. When we speak of the African-American tradition in the African-American church, we're talking about a specific style of worship, a worship that is is characterized by much expression, by African-American music uh, that would be home in a predominantly African-American church. Largely, we're speaking in Baptistic and Methodist churches. traditions, and that the preaching is characterized by your call and response, your themes of justice and uh, hope. Stylistically, it looks very different than other types of preaching. Well, some have thought either 
A, that cannot be wed with what we're going to identify as exposition in just uh, a minute, or uh, uh, B, if you do uh, wed them together, what's going to happen to the African-American preacher is that his preaching is going to be, quote-unquote, white, which could is like the label that you just do not want to have for African-American preaching. Uh, so exposition is simply explaining the text, and it's doing it based on the author's idea indicated by the terms in the text, the theology of the text, and the structure of the text, those unify to say the author is talking about something. You're preaching the message. Job, yeah, and our job is to exp, uh, explain that. Now, the characterization from the outside is that African-American preaching in the tradition does not do that, which is not necessarily uh, so. What we're saying is you can have the best of African-American culture, style, and rhetoric, and it can and does explain the text. And that's not a unique uh, experience. What I just did, I'm just blessed to be able to pull people together who are representative of that. But there's there's so many more people I could have included so that we understand it's both possible and is being done, and it's rich, even richer, when it's combined in the tradition. Now, I want to go in two directions, so I'm just signaling to you that there's going to be a follow-up to this no matter what. Um, let's talk about the service in the African-American church first and the context in which the preaching happens. I think a, a normal question might be, particularly for someone who isn't familiar with the African-American church, is the service like or unlike the service I might walk into if I weren't in an African-American church in terms of length, in terms of structure, the amount of singing, that kind of thing? What could one expect, or is there are there a variety of ways that happens? What What's the context for the preaching in the church? Uh, it, there are varieties of way it can happen, but you will have, uh, if I could say, uh, in a in a different sort of way, the music will be a setup for uh, the preaching. Um, you um, might have a special hymn or song that takes place to bring people's emotions and attention to a place that it is uh, easier for the preacher to connect. We, we say, um, instead of the preacher having to preach uphill, <laughs> uh, the preacher has an environment that is ripe uh, with the help of the music and all else that has happened for him to communicate the truth of, of God's Word. But you can expect people to talk back and to express their emotions while uh, going on. You can, in a traditional church, expect there to be grand celebration and much more musical intonation involved in uh, the preaching. And that might not be something you experience um, in, in other cultures, so it's something to be expected and to be enjoyed and welcomed. So, um, li a length of service. This isn't the second track, but uh, length of service, is it, um, I mean, in the average church in the States, I think in in, in uh, white communities, your service is going to run from an hour to maybe 75 minutes long. Um, is that a short Reader's Digest version of the black church, or is that um, about the same kind of length, or again, does it depend? 
It does depend. It depends regionally, and it, and in the modern era, it depends on this. If you're an African American church that's running multiple services, you have to do the same thing as any other multi-service church. Between services, you've got to clear that parking lot so the next group of people can get in. You've got to switch the children's workers and the children that were in the first hour versus the second hour. Where do the teens go? Where the middle schoolers and the high schoolers and switch? Whatever you want to call it, community groups, Sunday school class, and all that goes on. And to do that, you have to have a system, and the system means that preacher you don't get to preach 50 minutes because <laughs> the children can't stay in children's church that long and the workers don't know what to do with them and you're backing up the parking lot and so <laughs> this service has to be 75 80 minutes long done clear the vestibule clear the sanctuary next group comes comes in and we go to the next service and or the third service or the fourth service and the fifth service so in some places it's it's going to be timed out and programmed like that with people who are experts in managing that, managing that. But in other places, uh, regionally, it may just be, hey, we have one service, and we're carrying on uh, the traditional time that we've had for more than uh, 60, 70, even 100 years in some cases, and this is going to be a good two-and-a-half, three-hour experience here. And everyone there is going to be fine with it. Hmm. Uh, it's an interesting range, and, and I find that common in, in churches, particularly churches that are built around a minority presence, because there is an intense fellowship element and mutual support element that builds around the service that's a part of that community, because this is the one time of the week where they can gather together and, and, and be themselves. Yeah, so let's explore that for just a hot second, Dr. Bach. Uh, so I'm going to give shop talk that doesn't normally come outside of our community. But some people in the African-American church will actually say what you just said. This is the one place we get to be ourselves. So if we spend six days a week or five in the majority culture, we get to be ourselves and they'll just add. And without them, them meaning the majority uh, culture. And the intent is not to have a racist statement. It's just to say, boy, we had to so just change who we are and 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 conform to something else those days. Here, ah, oh, I can just let my hair down. I'm just me. You understand understand what I'm saying. I don't need to explain myself. Right, right. You don't need to explain yourself. And you know, we share these experiences. Right, right. Okay, good. All right, back to Monday. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Okay, so here's my second half of the question when we started down this track, which is, so despite the differences of the experience and, and, and the different distinctives of practice and maybe even the different distinctives of emphasis and maybe even the different distinctives of feel because of the nature of that experience, what allows for the bridge that builds across the church so that on the one hand we can celebrate um, differences that exist among us because we have different experiences on the one hand and yet affirm and make an effort to connect at the level of the unity that ultimately the Scripture calls us to possess. So no one culture has claim on Scripture to itself. That's just the fact God is Lord over all, all cultures, and He is the one who has breathed into the Word of God, has breathed the Word of God from His own mouth. So He's the owner. There's no cultural ownership of the Word of God. So when we go and we're doing expositions, as that's what we're talking about, the labor for any group to discern what God's voice is in the text, what this text means, and to ex explain it, is 
a common labor of grace for anybody that's marked out uh, and identified with Christ. On that, on that way, we're all striving by grace for the same thing. God, we want to honor you by communicating what you have said so that the people that we're called to serve and to, to shepherd, to, to love, are, are, can be obedient to you. That's, that transcends culture. I want to be obedient, whatever ethnic group I am, wherever I am living in the world. If, if Christ has called me to salvation, we want to be obedient. Well, that, that unites us. Now, how do I express that when I come into a place that is unfamiliar to me? It doesn't have to just be ethnically, but that's what we're talking about uh, here. How do I love the people differently than, than me, respect what is going on there, and yet not lose who I am in my identification? Well, I don't bring all illustrations and stories and examples and applications from something that would only apply to my region, my my type of family, my economic status, my pl- my my place. Uh, give me a second here, Doctor Box. So one time, a pastor at my current church gave an example of taking his family's boat out. One time, when he was a young child. Now, even most people in our middle class congregation couldn't identify with the experience of taking the family boat out. But I would never take that illustration to. A place where one people don't boat, two they can't afford boats. I just I wouldn't do that. That would be so unkind, and it wouldn't connect in there. So I have to be sensitive to those while saying, "Hey, let me just admit, you know, I'm I'm a little bit different here, and I can learn from you in this experience." But we're all striving for the same thing. We're trying to proclaim the gospel. And in the midst of proclaiming the gospel, there is uh, some someone pretty significant that we share, and that's our Lord. Amen. And in the midst of that, we know that he 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 calls to all levels of people. You know, he speaks to people who are uh, socially prominent, who are wealthy, etc. He speaks to people who are on the fringes or on the edges. We speaks to people in between. Uh, we we think of the vision in heaven. This is this is the thing that keeps me rolling on this topic. I think about what heaven's going to be when all tribes and all nations are going to be gathered together. We're all going to be proclaiming the name of the Lord together, side by side, uh, locking arms, um, raising hands together, etc. And, and realizing that the differences that God has made us with is a very important part of that story that needs, to the extent that it that those differences aren't allowed to come between us, um, uh, uh, needs affirmation for the way God made all of us and how um, sometimes those differences can teach us about blind spots that we ourselves have. They do teach us about that. And again, I, I'm... I would say that transculturally, uh, believers are driven by that vision that we see in the end, in in glory, where we are praising God in Revelation five, nine, and ten, because He has redeemed us from every every tribe. But we're recognizing there's a tribe thing there from every language, and we're recognizing the differences uh, there uh, from all from all lands. We're recognizing that the ethne or the, the, the Gentile in there consists of people from all, uh, all places around uh, the world. And so we, we share that vision and we um, identify around that. I think that's so 
uh, very um, significant to us maintaining the unity of the body and not letting culture come to the level of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the way I like to say it is, you know, you don't appreciate what reconciliation is until you understand the differences that have been reconciled in Christ. And, uh, you know, without that, if you try and make everybody the same and, and kind of wash it all out, then you actually undercut the work of God that's been done to bring these different yes. people together into one place, whereas when before they were estranged, now they're actually walking side by side and sharing something together. Yes, God has done a beautiful work in bringing people of all walks of life together. And this is something that you see, and so working exposition one time through Romans 16, I saw this in Paul's greeting to the church at Rome, how Paul emphasized both spiritual identity and social identity for all the people he's greeting and saying and recognizing, you know, the social identity, um, Erastus, the treasurer here, she was a mother to me, uh, he will say. Those things matter in there and are part of the redemptive story. And to minimize that or only say, well, we're colorblind, yes, in one sense, but in another sense, no, we're not. To minimize it would be uh, not to recognize part of what God is doing in redemption. Yeah, and you see that in, in portions of Scripture where people have different cultural practices about how they walk with God, and Paul says, Man, if that's not a first-level problem, then don't fight over it. <laughs> Let everybody As do a, what's right in their own conscience. That's right. And continue to love one another, that emphasis uh, that is in all throughout the New Testament, that love is where uh, is the trunk in there, the effective way we're displaying the gospel. And love will help us figure out how to navigate those second-tier issues, as we would say. Yeah. Well, Eric, our, our time is, is winding down here. Um, I, I just want to thank you for kind of giving us this glimpse. Uh, we, you know, uh, we, we, as I said, we've shared personally, privately about wanting to do stuff together, communicating and trying to kind of show and model the kind of conversation and bridges that are possible uh, between communities within the Lord, and I think you've helped us with that. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to share and really gifting us with a, with a sense of perspective about what a, a different experience might be for some people. Of course, other people who are listening who are out of the African American church will go, "Yeah, that's exactly what I what I understand. That's that's what I go through." But th that can help us. I think, um, work towards uh, both the appreciation of what is distinctive on the one hand and yet the affirmation of what unites us on the other. Well, thank you so much for creating a safe and a very courageous space. Let me just say that again, Dr. Bach. It's very courageous of you to entertain issues like this, all sorts of cultural issues that you do on the table. It's a outstanding uh, uh, broadcast, and I appreciate your sensitivity to the entire body and the willingness to discuss things that sometimes are difficult to even discuss uh, in the classroom and in our, our churches, and to do it 
in a way that tries to consider the entire body of Christ. Thank you so much for that. Uh, well, you're welcome, and the privilege is mine, because I really feel that the gift is coming from you in terms of helping us, helping someone like me to understand uh, a world that I didn't grow up in, that I didn't experience, but that I know many people do. And so uh, that that ability to build that bridge requires that people be willing to speak up and, and, and share their perspective, uh, sometimes at great risk. So I, I do appreciate Appreciate that very, very much. Good. So, um, in the last uh, few seconds here, let me just uh, say to you, Dr. Bach, I am waiting for you when you get your hands on uh, the book to. say, hey, you know, this book raised some interesting questions right here, and I hope uh, your listeners listeners will also enjoy thinking about those questions, too. Well, I, I, I fully anticipate that anyone who picks this up will uh, have things where they'll go, ooh, I've never thought about that before, and uh, <laughs> uh, and that's interesting, and boy, that's a different angle, et cetera, and, and the possibility of opening that up is uh, is something we're, we're looking forward to. Um, thanks again, Eric, for being a part of the show. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. God bless you. Yeah. And if um, and we want to thank you for joining us on the table. And if you have a topic that you'd like for us to consider for a future episode, please email us at the table at dts.edu. That's the table at dts.edu. We take those uh, requests seriously. We figure out, all right, is this a workable topic and who should be the expert who helps us think our way through this? And then we go after it. So we're looking to your feedback. We appreciate you being a part of uh, the show and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.